2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, Paul writes and says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we read these six verses, as we read Paul continuing uh, to talk with the Corinthian church, Paul lays out for us a vision of what it is to be a faithful minister. He gives us also the two uh, realities for every person who has ever lived. There will be those who will not believe because the veil is not lifted and the God of this world keeps their hearts and their minds and their eyes blinded to the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then there are those who will hear the gospel and because God works in their life to cause his light to shine in, they would see and know and understand and love and worship and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then they would spend their lives proclaiming Christ and giving their life in service to others. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, we're going to read back through these verses and then briefly unpack them. Paul says, therefore, meaning all he's talked about before, especially in chapter 3, having this ministry, meaning the ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul, in these first two verses of chapter 4, is restating a lot of his thoughts from chapter 3. It's just a brief summation of all he said before. The main point that he's reiterating here is that believers in Jesus, Paul himself included, are ministers of a new covenant that is empowered and given power and effectiveness by the Spirit of God at work in their life. And because it is the Spirit of God that is at work in the life of believer, making them a minister of the new covenant, unlike the old covenant which brought death, the new covenant brings light and life and glory. And so Paul says, this is the gospel, this is the covenant I'm a minister of. And I've received this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul is saying essentially that this is not something I inherited. It wasn't that my grandpa was a Baptist minister and my dad was a Baptist minister and now I'm a Baptist minister or my grandmother was a believer and my dad was a believer and so therefore I'm a believer. Paul, when he says that he has this ministry by the mercy of God, he's saying that it was as if God mercied the ministry to him. God gave Paul the gift of being a minister of the gospel. And so Paul has nothing to claim in himself that makes him a rightful minister of the gospel. 
Paul can only claim that it was the mercy of God that allowed him to see and know and believe the gospel and then be sent out to minister on the gospel's behalf. And that is true for each one of us that sit here this morning who are believers. God has mercy to us or given us the ability to be ministers of the new covenant that brings light and glory and life. And it's nothing that we can claim because of our own inherent goodness or anything that our family has done or the amount of money we've given to a church or anything that we may have done in service to God. But we receive that same ministry and that same ability to minister in the gospel because God has mercied it to us. And just like Paul, we do not lose heart. And what Paul is saying there is not that he would be somehow faint-hearted or lose hope in the gospel. What Paul says here when he writes to the Corinthians that he's not going to lose heart about the minister, the ministry of the new covenant that he has or the ministry of the gospel. When Paul says we do not lose heart, Paul is saying that they are not going to keep silent about the gospel, that they're not going to back down from giving a clear, honest representation of the gospel truth when they have the opportunity. And so Paul says, we have received this ministry by the mercy of God and we do not lose heart. And then immediately Paul goes in and he lists out a handful of things that he had never participated in, nor would he ever give himself the opportunity to participate in that would somehow diminish or make the gospel something different. And so Paul, being aware that his ministry is a gift of God to him, then quickly moves to renounce these following Practices. Paul says into verse 2 that he will not be disgraceful. And what he means there is he will not do things that are shockingly unacceptable when it comes to proclaiming God's word. That there will be no shock and awe factor about how Paul chose to present the gospel. But, and he would not disgrace the pure words of God in the gospel, but that he would be faithful to just proclaim the truth of the gospel. And then he says this, that they won't act in underhanded ways or it will not be anything that is a secret and it won't be anything that has the flavor or the air of dishonesty around it as he proclaims the word of God and ministers in the gospel, that there would be no secret way to get more knowledge about who God is, that it wouldn't be a dishonest, like a bait and switch, tell people Jesus is one thing, get them in, then really hit them with the truth of who Jesus is. Paul then says that they won't be or practice cunning in the proclamation of the word of God. So they won't try to achieve the ends of gospel ministry by deceit or evasion. They're not going to openly lie about who God is, the state of the human condition in our sinfulness and our death, the work of Christ on our behalf. They're not going to lie about the solid truths of the gospel, nor are they going to evade talking about hard things that their culture doesn't really want them to talk about. Paul says we're going to openly and honestly proclaim the truth. And lastly, Paul says that they will not tamper or interfere with proclaiming the word of God in a way that would cause damage, nor would they make unauthorized alterations to the word of God. Paul understood that the gospel ministry that he was entrusted with 
was given to him by the very mercy of God. And therefore, he did not have to pursue any of these means or any of these ends to try to make the gospel more acceptable, more reasonable, more easy to understand. Paul says, if this is a ministry that's given to me by the mercy of God, and I'm not going to lose heart, then I'm only always going to talk about this in the most honest and direct terms I know how to communicate in. And that is a challenge for us today because there are many people who want us to soften the edges of the gospel or not be so upfront about the clear teachings of God in relation to what it looks like to love and follow him. And then in verse 2, Paul does say what he will do as it pertains to the ministry that God has given him. He says that he and any other true minister of the gospel will openly state the truth of the gospel. There will be no monkeying around with the gospel. There will be no changing of the gospel. There will be no altering of the gospel. But it will be an open, clear statement of the truth, so much so that Paul closes verse 2 by saying, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And what Paul is saying is, if you were to put me beside the people I'm preaching the gospel to on the day of judgment, when they stand before God, I am so sure of the purity of my proclamation that their conscience would further condemn them and their conscience would not be able to point back to me and say, I would have believed the gospel if only Paul would have been honest with the truths of the gospel. Paul is saying, I've been so honest and so true that I would stand beside anyone that has heard the gospel on the day of judgment and my conscience would be clear before God and they would have no right to accuse me of not giving them every opportunity to hear and respond to the truth of the gospel. And if we think about this, it makes sense that this would be the natural outflow of one who recognizes, as Paul does in verse 1, that the ministry we have is a gift from God. Integrity Church is not your church. Your small group is not your small group. If you're participating in ministry, which you are doing if you are a believer in Christ. You are ministering on behalf of God and you have received the ability to minister by his mercy and it is not your prerogative to change God's gospel to make you look good. It is your responsibility to openly and honestly tell people the truth of their sinfulness, the truth of their death, and the truth of the promise of the life that could be theirs in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so the overwhelming nature of the gospel and its truths demands an honest representation by those who have been changed by the good news. Why do we struggle so much to believe this is true? Why do we constantly think there is a better way outside of the open statement of the truth to win people to Christ? Perhaps, maybe, it's not that we're always messing with the gospel to try to make it easier for people to believe, but perhaps if Paul were going to write Corinthians to integrity or to restoration, maybe we would be most guilty, not of cunning or deceit or tampering. Maybe it would be our silence concerning the gospel at all. 
maybe that would be what we're most guilty of. Is not messing with the word of God or not altering the gospel, but just a sheer terror in even speaking the gospel. Because I think Paul rightly would laugh in the face of the quote that floats around church from time to time. Uh, Different churches, different areas, you've seen it. At one point, I liked this quote, and then I became a believer and hated it. Um, Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Just forget I even said that, because that's the worst statement in the history of humankind concerning the gospel. Paul doesn't say, he will say other places, you can watch the way I live my life to see the impact of the gospel, but never once does Paul seem to indicate that just by living life with our mouths shut, people will just automatically know and love and worship Christ. And so we must be a people who openly state the truth and trust God to do the work that only he can do. If gospel ministry is something that we're given by the mercy of God and we are just to be faithful in our preaching and proclamation and sharing of the good news, then we fall back on and we rest on the sovereignty of God to work in people's lives to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so Paul gives us a beautiful picture of that in the next four verses. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Paul says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul, in these two verses, I think gives us a very central truth that we have to settle deep in our hearts if we're going to be effective ministers of the gospel. And the truth is this. Everyone will not become a believer. There are people you know and love in your family, in your friend groups. There are coworkers. There are others that you interact with. There have been untold millions, billions of people who have been born who have never once believed in Christ. And God's glory is not diminished in that. God's power is not diminished in that. There's nothing about God's character that takes a hit when people aren't Believers, It's the reality of being born in sin. And we trust God's sovereignty in that. But we can't think that somehow we're going to be able to save people if God doesn't act on their behalf. And there are those who will hear today in our life, just like in Corinth and down through the ages, but they will never respond in faith to the gospel. So Paul first states that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. These are those who are simply unable and unwilling to believe the good news of the gospel. It's always more questions, more delays, more putting off coming to the point of making a decision about who Christ is and what he means for their life. This isn't to say, though, that we then retreat and go, well, God's sovereign, so it doesn't matter. I don't have to do anything. I can just rest knowing that God's going to save who he's going to save, and I'm powerless in this. Ultimately, God will do that, but you should be moved to tears often 
by those you know who are outside of Christ, who if they die, spend eternity separated from Christ in hell. And so we love these people. We pray for them. We serve those, even if they never, ever, ever come to the point of honoring and adoring Christ as their Savior. We're still called to labor over them in prayer. We're still called to love them deeply. We're still called to care for them and serve them. However, this doesn't mean in our loving and in our caring and in our serving, even for those who are non-believers, what it doesn't give us the license to do as we get to know these people and love them for who they are, it doesn't mean, though, that we get to somehow tamper with or otherwise distort the gospel just to try to get them to become believers. Because if we do, what we end up creating are people who don't actually believe in the gospel at all. And you provide a false sense of assurance that someone is in Christ just so that you can sleep easier at night and feel like you've done something to contribute to God's kingdom. And you end up not even allowing them the chance to respond to the true gospel. And so there are people every day who die outside of Christ. And the same would be true for you and I if it weren't for the work of God in our life. And so you can be bold in sharing the gospel. I I think this more so than what Paul says in 5 and 6 about the life, I think this should be the most encouraging, some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture for you to be bold in sharing the gospel. Because not everyone's going to believe, but some will, and you're not responsible. Your gospel presentation is not going to determine if they become a believer or not. You better be faithful to present the biblical gospel. But even if you stumble and fall over it, it is still the mercy of God that has to work in their life to allow them to become believers. So you should be bold to engage anyone you come in contact with, with the truths of the gospel. If their eyes are veiled and they're already perishing, you have lost nothing by taking your time to serve them by presenting the gospel to them. For what you are reminded of in those moments, this is why I think it's so life-giving to read and really understand what Paul's saying in 3 or 4, is even as you share the gospel with those who would never believe, as you sit and share, you are reminded over and over and over again of the beauty and the mercy and the grace of God towards you in Jesus Christ. And it should devastatingly humble you that you are ministering a gospel that was mercied to you by God himself. And so we share without fear because it's God who will do the work of saving But as we share, even with those who would not be believers, we are reminded over and over and over again to the point that we are humbled lower and lower and lower of the grace and the mercy and the beauty of God in Christ. So referring to this passage in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, David Garland says the following, those who look through the glass of a me-first culture can see no glory or power in giving one's life for others. The gospel Paul proclaims does promise glory, but not through the acquisition of worldly power. It comes instead through unconditional surrender of one's power to God. This divine paradigm so conflicts 
with human ways of thinking and acting that few ever recognize the truth that it is. I'm going to read that first part to you again, first sentence. Those who look through the glass of a me-first culture, which we live in the middle of, selfies are the number one cause of a me-first culture, those who look through the glass of a me-first culture can see no glory or power in giving one's life for others. We live in a world and in a time just like Paul did in writing this letter where there are people all around us who will never see, never know, and never grasp the glory that comes and the power that comes in giving one's life away for others. And so their eyes are veiled and they are perishing. And our hearts break and our hearts weep. And we go plant churches in Wilmington and we work in Third Street Community Center and we support missionaries around the globe in East Asia because we don't know who's going to have the veil lifted. And so just because some will perish does not cause us to retreat or reserve our gospel presentation until we know it will be accepted, but it pushes us into the forefront of being faithful, honest ministers of the gospel because there are those who would believe but we do not get discouraged and the effectiveness of our ministry, both in our personal life and in the life of a church is not based off of those who would believe versus those who would not believe. It's based off of our willingness to be faithful to the gospel as God has set it forth in his word. And as we're faithful to that word, God works in us to sanctify us. And then Paul says in the second part of these verses, Paul points to the reality that the the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And I want to make certain we don't say, well, Paul was first century Middle Eastern guy, and so we've progressed out of this way of thinking. Satan is far, far from passive in the world in which we currently live. He is not an innocent bystander in the world we live in Now, he is not all-present, he is not all-knowing, he is not all-powerful. Those are attributes that all belong to God and God alone. Satan is nowhere near on the same level as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Satan is a very powerful and demonic force who still works with very limited power and with a very short leash. But he works to wreak havoc in our world today because of sin. And if you don't, if it somehow escapes your rational mind that that could be true, you will run up against frustration after frustration after frustration as you seek to pursue Christ because you have an enemy with a blood lust to see you stumble and to see you fall. Not only does it have a bloodlust to see you stumble and to see you fall, but it ticks him off when people become believers. So Satan is not somehow a a passive actor in our world. He acts and he works in very specific ways. But I want you to know this. Satan works in concert with our own rebellion and sin to keep the blinders on our hearts and minds so that we are unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so we, we must be careful not to reform ourselves out of understanding that we live in a world at war. 
And our enemy is actively working to keep folks blinded and uncomprehending of the person and work of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying in 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that idea of keeping them from seeing is not an idea of a one-time thing. Satan and his demons are actively working to keep folks blinded, to keep folks putting off the decision to follow Christ. And so again, David Garland in his commentary on 2 Corinthians in this passage says this, Christ's death on the cross reveals most clearly God's love and power, but it befuddles or repels many as complete foolishness since they see no glory radiating from such shame and dishonor. They cannot see how weakness and humiliation go with power and glory. And that is the lie that Satan will whisper over and over and over and over again to the unbeliever is that you cannot believe that power and glory would go with such weakness and humiliation. And like Paul writes then, the wisdom of God is stronger than the wisdom of men and makes them appear foolish. And the cross is a stumbling block and an offense. And over and over and over again in Paul's own writing, he sets up this reality that the cross of Christ, the center point of what it means to be a believer and a follower where Our atonement was bought by the shed blood of Jesus to those whose minds are blinded by the God of this world. It will never look beautiful. It will never be awe-inspiring. It will never be worship-generating. It will always look foolish and stupid and like the waste of a very good life of a moral teacher. And that's what Paul means when he says that they're blinded so that they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So they don't see the glory radiating from Christ off the cross. And then they cannot see and they cannot understand that God would take on human form and become a man in the person of Jesus. And so not only do they reject Jesus in his death, but they also reject Jesus as the very person of God. And so their minds and their hearts remain veiled. So we will fail to be effective in sharing the gospel if we continually try to find ways to share the gospel that we think will cause people to believe. The gift of faith to believe is the prerogative of God himself. We are simply called to teach the truth, not change, soften, or alter the truth in an attempt to try and create Christians. And so Paul says, This is the reality of some that you'll share the gospel with. But thank God, 2 Corinthians 4 does not end in verse 4. Verses 5 and 6 say this. Paul brings us now to what life looks like for those who are believers in Christ. For what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to work backwards from verse 6 into verse 5. Because verse 6 is how God acts in our life to make us believers. And then verse 5 then gives us at least two ways, two two kind of measuring sticks for what a believer's life should look like. So Paul, in verse 6, helps answer the question of how anyone can believe. 
The reason the Corinthians or anyone of us in this room became believers is because God acted on our behalf. If God does not act on a person's behalf, that person does not become a believer in Jesus. And so Paul says this in 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and there Paul has in view Genesis 1 and 2 where God speaks the world into existence. And Paul says the very same creating power of God that would deliver a word and light would shine out of darkness, that same power that could create the the, the heavens and every animal and create the land and the sea and all the birds, create everything we've ever known. Paul says that same power then is at work in us for the God who said that light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light. So Paul is not just simply referencing something about God that others would have known. Paul is drawing us in to see that in this moment where we become believers, the same God who spoke light into existence in Genesis 1 is here using his power to recreate or give new life to us. This is a creational act of God. Your believing is God creating something new. Paul's going to unpack that when you get into 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But when you become a believer, when anyone becomes a believer, it's not simply someone went from somewhat bad to a little bit better. It is a recreating by God's own power to shine light into the darkness and the death of our souls so that we could see and have have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God does not use his power to destroy us, to cast us aside. God uses his power in love to move towards us. And then in the very same way that he spoke light into existence, he speaks life into our hearts. And if God is powerful enough to create the sun and the moon and the stars, and if he works in resurrection power to raise Jesus from the dead, then we rejoice in the fact that there's never been one person who's existed who has been outside of the reach of the mercy and grace of God. And when God speaks and says, let the light shine in that person's heart, there's nothing they can do to stop it. Their world is exploded and they finally see and savor Christ for who he is. So Paul says, we can be open and honest about the truth of the gospel, but it will always and only be God who lifts the veil so that God himself can be embraced, loved, worshiped, and adored in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in verse five, Paul gives us two characteristics as we get near the end. I wanna give you two characteristics of what life without the veil looks like. So if you go back up to verse five, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So you may be quick to rush past the first part of verse five, like, come on, man, like, we get it. Like, we talk about Jesus. But, but stop and think just for, for a minute. How often in your day-to-day life 
do you take verse 5 for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord? How often do you take that first part of verse 5 and you treat God more like someone who just won an Academy Award? What I mean by that is we don't necessarily always think about proclaiming Christ and not ourselves. I know for me, I'm most often guilty of proclaiming Christ to get to telling you about how awesome I am. That Christ is a springboard, not to deep humility, but to proud arrogance that I would somehow say, Christ is great, but you're really going to be impressed with my life. And Paul says, no, that, that's not, if the veil's been lifted, Christ isn't a springboard to impress people with how great you are. If the veil's been lifted, then Christ has a way of driving you to deep humility that the only thing that you really would think is worth talking about if you talk to someone long enough is the beauty and truth of who Christ is. And you don't just talk about Christ as a good guy. You talk about him, like Paul says, as Lord, as the ruler, as the one who has a rightful say over their life. And so Paul says, We have to be people who don't just thank God for the life that we have and then sprint as fast as possible into trying to impress uh, impress others with how awesome we are. Paul says that it's not the way the veil-lifted life looks. Instead, we focus on and we must proclaim Christ as Lord. And if we can just be honest for one second, even Most of our theological and biblical talk is less about the risen Christ and more about us patting ourselves on the back for what we know as if our knowledge could actually save someone. We have wicked, wicked hearts that need the grace of God. And we throw ourselves on his mercy lest we peddle in a gospel that's not really the gospel, lest we minimize Christ as someone who made our life better and we don't celebrate Christ as the cause for our very life. And secondly, Paul says that a life without the veil is lived in service to others. Once we have had God shine in our lives to give the light of the knowledge of of his glory in the face of Christ, then we begin to model the life of Christ and live our life for others. This idea of giving oneself in service to others is actually a prevalent thought throughout Jesus' teaching. Paul isn't talking about anything new. So I just want to walk you through three verses real quick where Christ talks about this idea. In Matthew 20, 26 through 28, Christ says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ again, Luke twenty two twenty six. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. In John twelve twenty six, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we must ask ourselves the question: Am I giving my life away to serve others, or? Do I only serve others when it doesn't interfere with my comforts, with my time, my money, my conveniences, or maybe most importantly of all, my reputation? How many people 
do we walk by and not serve because we're more concerned with our reputation in the eyes of other men than we are in being faithful to the call of Christ to die and give ourselves away or to borrow the words of Paul to have our lives poured out like a drink offering. We are faithful ministers of a new covenant, a covenant that brings light and glory and life. And so we don't mess with it. We openly proclaim it. And we know that there are those who will not believe. We know and we weep and we pray that God would work in their lives to give them the gift of belief. But we trust in God's goodness and in his sovereignty for those that never bow the knee to Christ. But for those of us who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to be serious, deadly serious, eternally serious about talking about Christ as Lord. And we have to be willing to give ourselves away until there's nothing left because that's what our Lord did when he hung on a cross naked with no clothes, no home, no friends, no family, and he died in our place. We give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel if the veil has been lifted. Garland, in his commentary, offers this summation of the effect of the gospel on Paul and on us, and I'll close with this. He, meaning Paul, recognized that the direction of Christianity is downward in the incarnation and outward in sacrificial labor for others. Let us pray. 